Tonight's talk is about compassion. We could say that the practice of compassion begins the moment we sit down on our cushion and encounter knee pain or mental agitation. We think of meditation as peaceful, as reducing our stress, and yet what do we find? We find what is called in Pali, dukkha. It is the Pali word for suffering. One definition is found in the sutras, pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and despair. It's kind of nice to know them as a mantra. Pain, sorrow, grief, lamentation, and despair. Those are the more obvious kinds of suffering. And then it also has the meaning of the dissatisfaction of wanting things to be different than they are. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So a lot of our being here on retreat is first about recognizing this kind of suffering in our experience, sometimes expressed as, wow, I had no idea I was so judgmental, or wow, I had no idea I was so fearful, seeing in our own experience ways in which we are caught ways in which we experience this quality of dissatisfaction or disease. Then beginning to open to it, not trying to run away from it, but actually opening to it and learning how to be with it, and learning how to do so with greater clarity and greater kindness and ease. The good news is that we discover that this is possible, that we do find ways of being with it with greater clarity and kindness. We discover resources in ourselves that perhaps we didn't even know we had, resources of patience, of calmness, of allowing, of acceptance, of endurance, of letting go, of energy of curiosity, of joy, etc. We learn that bringing this quality of attentiveness or mindfulness to our experience is the very first and essential step in letting go of wanting things to be different than they are. In the seeing itself are grasping lessons. So we call what we do here on retreat practice, because it is. The real test is yet to come when you leave here and go back into your busy, complex lives. So I'd like to talk tonight about some of the qualities that we will take with us when we leave here. What do we take with us when we leave? Primarily, what we take is this capacity that we've been cultivating, that I just spoke about. This capacity to be mindful, to be with what is, with less attachment and with less aversion. 
and perhaps an appreciation and a clearer seeing, actually, of the value of bringing that back into our lives. The gift we bring to our families, our dear ones, our communities, our world, actually, of our wakeful presence. This is the gift we can offer in returning home. In learning to be with our own suffering, with greater acceptance, with clarity and kindness, this is what makes it possible, actually, to be with the suffering of others, with these same qualities. We find in meditation an ally, the ally of mindfulness, of awareness. Why this is so has something to do with the very nature of awareness itself. I'd like to read you something from the Platform Sutra of the Sixth Zen Patriarch. He's writing to us. Isn't that wonderful? He says, good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and wisdom as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and wisdom are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of wisdom. Wisdom itself is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then wisdom exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and wisdom are alike. What he is saying is that wisdom in this sense is not knowledge, but a quality of non-identification with our experience. In every moment of mindfulness or awareness, there is no identification. There is only the seeing. An earlier version of this sutra The word wisdom was replaced by the word kindness. So I'd like to read this sutra again, replacing the word kindness where wisdom was used, and see how that sounds. Good friends, my teaching of the Dharma takes awareness and kindness as its basis. Never say mistakenly that awareness and kindness are different. They are a unity, not two things. Awareness itself is the substance of kindness. Kindness itself is the function of awareness. At the very moment there is awareness, then kindness exists. Good friends, this means that meditation and kindness are alike. I like this sutra because it says so much about what we are actually cultivating. That inherent in this attentiveness, in this awareness we bring to our experience, is both the wisdom of non-identification and the kindness or of connection or intimacy with our experience. Awareness is what allows us to let go of the separate self the story of me and mine. 
and to be intimate with all of life. One expression of enlightenment that I particularly, that particularly resonates with me is suddenly she was intimate. So simple, but that quality of deep connection. Awareness brings light into the dark confusion of our lives, allowing us to find our way. It really is a light in this world. Awareness is our greatest ally in responding to the suffering, to our own suffering, to the suffering around us, carrying as it does these qualities of both non-identification and the qualities of intimacy and connection. The Buddha said that a useful way to see the world was not to describe it as along the continuum of good or bad or right and wrong or success and failure or winning and losing, but rather to see the world and our task here as suffering and the end of suffering. What leads to suffering? What leads to the end of suffering? Can we make this a central question in our lives? It can help to focus what we are doing here. This opening to suffering, to recognizing it, to being with it, is certainly not about indulging in a pessimistic view but actually it is about coming out of denial about its presence and cultivating this quality of open-heartedness, which is called compassion. Compassion is actually born out of our capacity to respond to suffering. Hildegard of Bingen calls compassion awakening the heart from its ancient slumber. And the opening of the heart can feel like this sometimes, like creaking doors that are rusty, that are being pushed open gently. And it does happen. The heart awakens. And it awakens in response to this openness, to this quality of dissatisfaction or disease or pain, sorrow, lamentation, grief, and despair. Compassion is the trembling of the heart in the presence of suffering. It connects us with others with empathy. But it also has this quality of non-identification with the personal story. That is why it is said that compassion is not to be confused with pity or grief, or aversion. These are reactions of the separate self. When we feel compassion, one analogy I like is that it is like the right hand taking care of the left. You know, is this hand going to say, oh, sorry, you're, you're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> or sorry, I, I'm really, you know, I feel sorry for you, but, you know. What can you do? i got to take care of myself. (laughs) 
This quality of compassion is expressed in a very beautiful poem, which I seem to have forgotten to bring. Too bad. (laughs) I'll save it for tomorrow morning, perhaps. But it is that, that sense. It's a very beautiful poem. I'm having compassion for myself right at this moment. Um, but it is that very much that sense of equality, of seeing the suffering as a part of, of ourselves in that sense of sameness that differences in the moment of compassion are minimized. We see there is no separation. Sometimes compassion arises quite unexpectedly and suddenly. And that's what this poem (laughs) shows so vividly. In such moments, we could say there is a break in the forward momentum of karma and a shift, actually, in our sense of identity. I have another story that illustrates this very vividly. I did remember this one. (laughs) This story is about a, a, a figure in the Buddhist time by the name of Angulimala. And it's an epic story, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story because we would be here for a long time. But Angulimala basically was a serial killer. Angulimala literally means garland of fingers. He, through a series of unfortunate um, bad influences on his young impressionable mind, came into wicked ways and was given the mission of killing a thousand people and collecting a a thousand fingers of his victims. And so he did, and he was very strong and very big, and he would lie in the forest, he would stay in the forest and wait for his victims to come by, and he uh, collected a finger from each of his victims, and then strung the bones of these fingers into a garland which he wore around his neck. Well, Angulimala had killed 999 victims. He was anticipating killing the thousandth and completing his mission. Now, just at this moment, his mother, who had been wondering where her dear son had gone off to, about this, this Angulimala and thought it might be her son. So she was headed into the forest to see him. Now the Buddha, meanwhile, having um, had a connection with Angulimala in a previous life and with his psychic powers in full blossom, saw the situation that Angulimala was in danger of killing his mother and so the Buddha himself headed into the forest to try to prevent this dire happening. And so here we pick up the story. Uh, From his lookout, Angulimala saw his mother approaching. 
So, though he recognized her, so steeped was his mind in the heartless thrill of violence that he still intended to complete the thousand fingers by killing the very woman who had brought him into this world. Just at that moment, the Buddha appeared on the road between Angulimala and his mother. Seeing him, Angulimala thought, Why should I kill my mother for the sake of a finger when there is someone else? Let her live. I will kill the recluse and cut off his finger. Angulimala then took up his sword and shield and followed close behind the Buddha. Then the Buddha performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, though walking as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Buddha, who was walking at his normal pace. This stunned Angulimala. He said, he, he thought to himself, how could this be? Though I am walking as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Buddha, stop, recluse, stop. The Buddha said, I have stopped, Angulimala. Now you stop. And Gulimala thought, said to the Buddha, While you are walking, recluse, you tell me you have stopped. But now, when I have stopped, you say, I have not stopped. I ask you now, O recluse, what is the meaning of it? How is it that you have stopped, and I have not? The Buddha replied, And Gulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings. But you have no restraint towards things that breathe. So that is why I have stopped, and you have not. Then Angulimala realized, and a great change of heart came over him. The suppressed current of his nobler and purer urges broke through the dam of hardened cruelty to which he had become habituated in these years of his life. Moved to the very roots of his being, he threw away his weapons and pledged himself to adopt a totally new way of life. He had, in those moments, a kind of spiritual rebirth. The conversion of his heart gave him a power over time to help and to heal even stronger than his previous power to hurt and to destroy. So this is a very interesting story, showing as it does the power of letting go, we could say, or having our personal story quite dramatically interrupted. Spiritual life is full of such stories, of conversion, we could call them. They raise an interesting question of what happens when the forward momentum of our karma is stopped, when our personal story radically changes and our old identity falls away. This can happen, can happen in all kinds of ways, sometimes through sudden illness, through a sudden change in circumstance, through trauma, through loss, through an accident. 
We thought we were in a story about being a mother, and then our child dies. Or we thought we were in a story about being an Olympic athlete, and we're in an accident and left paralyzed. We thought we were about to realize a lifelong dream, and it all falls apart. Such radical changes are dramatic incidents which place us very clearly on the intersection between the horizontal and the perpendicular. (laughs) Now, I could not say this to most people in the world. They wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. But you have been, you know given this secret language, so to speak, (laughs) so you know what I'm referring to. But it's a very interesting way to think about it. If we become, in the face of such suffering, such traumatic, radical change, it's not uncommon for people to feel quite victimized. If we do become victimized by such incidents, You know, why me? I don't deserve it. This is not fair. In those kinds of reactions, we continue, we could say, along the horizontal way, immersed in our story of suffering. To go vertical is to see the gift of the end of a story, the end of an identity the end of me and mine. To allow one's heart and mind to open and to see that awareness and compassion enter. It's very paradoxical, this relationship to suffering. We can see that our response to suffering can engender more self-preoccupation or it can open us to the universal nature of suffering. In the kinds of suffering that there are in this world, there is no new news. Anything that you could experience has probably been experienced many, many times over by many, many beings in this world. And this is not at all to belittle our struggle with suffering, because we all know how difficult it is to stay open to the suffering in our world. But there are people who inspire. There are those in our world who are able to keep their hearts open in the face of suffering and to respond really in remarkable ways. Some of the people that I think of are the Dalai Lama, or Martin Luther King, or Nelson Mandela, or a Mother Teresa. And then there are people that we probably never hear of. I'd like to share a story about one such person, nobody well known, that I happen to read about in the local newspaper. This is a story about two women. I've changed their names, but one's name was Janice Smith, and one's name was Linda Michaels. 
Linda Michaels is a 26-year-old who drank a bottle of wine, got in her car, barreled through the barriers on Ocean View Boulevard in Pacific Grove, and hit Smith, 38, who was walking on the recreation trail. She was running about half an hour late that late August day, but as, al uh, but as always, she wanted to try to catch the glorious sunset. She never saw the car coming. Smith's hip was fractured in five places, her lung punctured, the middle finger on her left hand severed, her ribs cracked, her right leg cut. She had to have a tent over her bed to hold up the covers because she couldn't take the weight of them on her hips and legs. Three months later, she can't talk about the pain without breaking down. I didn't know our psyches could endure so much, she said, and not just die from it. But it isn't just the hurt that makes her sob. It's thinking about what could have been and what now might be. You must listen to Smith's own explanation for why, with the aid of a walker, she maneuvered through Judge Price's courtroom last Tuesday and begged him not to send Michaels to prison. Listen carefully. You might never hear compassion like this again. I really believe hatred and anger wouldn't fix anybody, said Smith, a massage therapist who now has no income but all the same bills. Somebody had to do something right here. It had to be fair, it had to be just, and it had to be good. She wanted Michaels to teach English literature. If Michaels had gone to prison, they wouldn't have let a convicted felon work with children. Her life would have been ruined, too. Now at least she'll be able to do the things she's dreamt of and has studied for. Both of us live through this. Every day I go to bed in pain, I wake up in pain. But I don't want to quit. I have to keep going, and she has to keep going. There was no conflict in my heart when I made this decision. Somebody had to save these two lives. Funny, Smith used to think she got shortchanged in this life, that she hadn't been given her own special gift. She couldn't paint, she couldn't sing, she couldn't dance, she couldn't even cook. People always told her, though, that she had a loving heart, a kind heart. They had no idea. Compassion in such a situation redeems in some way the unbearability of suffering. Sometimes the suffering in our lives appears in a very different form. It may appear as a failure or a betrayal when our illusions are shattered or our heart is pierced in some way and we are being forced to let go. Rumi called this the importance of failing. God fixes a passionate desire in you and then disappoints you. God does that a hundred times. But sometimes your plans work out. You feel fulfilled and in control. That's because if you were always failing, you might give up. But remember... 
It is by failures that lovers stay aware of how they're loved. Failure is the key to the kingdom within. Not the usual message, is it? But it has its own internal sense because when our personal strategies of control and manipulation are defeated, perhaps we are closer than ever to knowing a true freedom of heart. Another story of seeming failure. This is a night of stories. This is another story from the Buddhist time about a nun named Siha who was suicidal. This is her story. Distracted, this is the story she wrote. Distracted, too passionate, dumb about the way things work, I was stung and tossed by memories. Haunted, you could say. I went on like this, wandering for seven years, thin, pale, desperate, nothing to hold me. Finally taking a rope, I went to the woods. Hanging is better than this life. The noose was strong. I tied it to the branch of a tree, flung it round my neck, when suddenly, look, it snapped. Not my neck, my heart was free. She thought she had failed. She gave up. She died, but not in the sense that she thought she was going to. So these are dramatic instances of radical changes which force a stopping and a letting go, out of which new awareness is born. On a more mundane level in our own practice, in our own lives, we can see how we are caught often in a kind of suffering that repeats and repeats and repeats. How might stopping help us? I'd like to tell the story about my dog. I have a dog named Max, and he's a Jack Russell Terrier, for those of you who that means anything to. He's a small, rather energetic dog with a mind of his own. And when he was rather young, probably about one or younger, I took him downtown one day with me on a leash, and I, overestimating his abilities, as we do with our own dogs, you know, like children, we think they're very intelligent and wise. Um, I went into a shop to get some something to drink, an iced tea or something to go, and meanwhile I tied Max up on the sidewalk to a um, plastic chair. <laughs> well, I was kind of a new dog mom, you know, and I had <laughs> I didn't know yet what potential was. (laughs) So I had a great deal of faith in Max's ability to sit down and behave himself, so I said, you know, stay there. I went in the shop. Well, as you can imagine, about a minute later, I hear all this commotion outside, and I go out, and I see Max 
dashing up the street, carrying, you know, pulling this plastic chair behind him and looking over his shoulder and barking at it. And, you know, we're kind of like the same way. We drag these stories around with us. And we bark at them. Isn't it true? Not realizing that if we just stop, if we just stop, the whole thing is over. So, I'd like to talk for a little bit about the value that we can bring to our practice and to our lives of this quality of just stopping. Stopping all doing, stopping all striving, stopping this forward momentum of our habits, of our habitual conditioning. We can practice stopping. We can even practice the, even the idea of doing something called meditation is sometimes benefited by not meditating. We have, there is one teacher in the Dzogchen tradition who uses this technique quite a bit. He'll come into a room where everybody is meditating busily in a way and he'll say, stop meditating. If I say this to you right now, Stop. Stop what you are doing. Stop all doing, all trying, all efforting. What happens when we stop? What is it that stops? Our breath doesn't stop. Sounds don't stop. Sensations don't stop. But our habitual way of reacting to all of this perhaps comes to rest at least for a few moments. This forward momentum of wanting and resisting which we often tend to bring to all the moments of our lives including meditation. And what emerges in this space of stopping? What happens when we have this, this attitude of just stopping. One thing that emerges is a heightened awareness of now. Can you feel it? Yeah. Suddenly you're present. This is called meditation. When we're just with what is. Without judging, without trying to make something happen, we can come to rest in a very immediate way in present reality. Often in this quality of stopping, stillness of body arrives. We're just suddenly still. Agitation drops away. Also in this stopping, there's a kind of space which begins to open. And the awareness which is not so identified with the personal story becomes more present, the story of me, we take a break. You notice that? 
Can you sense that in your experience? When I stop, and I practice this, I I like this practice of stopping. When I stop, I'm no longer identified with being Anna, with being a teacher, with being a woman, with getting something, being right, being wrong, succeeding, failing. The whole thing just comes to a rest. And there is only the resting in seeing itself, in being aware, in being present. In this stopping, it feels like something new is born. becomes more present. John Cage, the musician, he wrote, if you let it, it supports itself. You don't have to. Each something is a celebration of the nothing that supports it. When we remove the world from our shoulders, We notice it doesn't drop. Where is the responsibility? This is a practice, this simple practice of stopping that we can take with us back into our busy daily lives. Remembering that meditation itself is a stopping and a letting go. That is its intention. We can practice this stopping without getting on the zafu. We can practice it in little moments throughout our day. Just stopping and resting in the seeing of what is, even if it's for 30 seconds. And we can also practice it in the middle of our meditation, particularly when we notice we are caught in some kind of striving or wanting it to be different. And we, at that moment, just stop. Another way to practice stopping this forward momentum that I have found useful is through a more reflective or active investigation of our experience in the form of two questions. These are questions which were put to me by one of my teachers. When we are caught in a story, and it keeps running, a story of fear, a story of worry, a story of judgment, a story of anger. When we are caught in such a story, we can ask ourselves, is it true? Is it really true? When we ask this story, we can go inside and see. Is it true, this story? It's, in my experience, quite amazing to find out how often this story has no basis in reality. But that doesn't seem to stop us from pursuing it, does it? Another question which I really like in the same vein, is who would I be without this story? Who would I be without the story of fear? Who would I be without this story of anger? 
It's a question that works on you. You don't have to think about it so much, but let yourself hear it and see what comes. It's another way of stopping the mind, if only for 30 seconds, and creating more space in this forward momentum that we are carried forward in our lives on. These questions can question, in a good way, the automatic assumptions that we make about what is real and what is true. One of my favorite expressions of compassion, of compassionate awareness, is something by Nisargadatta, who said, Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. And between the two, my life flows. This experience, this understanding, is born out of attention, out of awareness. Our lives will give us many opportunities for learning how to be with what is, with compassionate awareness. And we will make mistakes. We will fall down. But hopefully we will remember also how to return and begin again. So I'd like to close with a final little story, which is this. The student says to the teacher, what is the secret of life? The teacher says, good judgment. The student asks, well, how do I find or how do I get good judgment? The student says through, I mean the teacher says, through experience. Well, how do I gain experience? Bad judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And so it is. So maybe we could sit together for a moment. Love tells me I am everything. Wisdom tells me I am nothing. Between the two, my life flows.
This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on January 5, 2000. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.